The Lord be with you. <laughs> Let us pray. O God of unchangeable power and eternal light, look favorably upon thy whole church, that wonderful and sacred mystery, and by the tranquil operation of thy perpetual providence, carry out the work of man's salvation, that things which were cast down may be raised up, and that all things may return into unity through him by whom all things were made, even thy Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, welcome back. We had a break for Thanksgiving, so we are resuming our study of the seven churches in the book of Revelation and the seven letters, Jesus' words to these churches. Uh, just a reminder as we turn to, again, the study of the church in Sardis, that what we're supposed to do as we read through these descriptions is to ask ourselves, what kind of a church are we? Uh, this is not meant to be merely an academic exercise. It's meant to be a diagnostic tool by which we judge the spiritual health of our own congregation. Are we like the church in Ephesus? Are we like that suffering church in Smyrna? Are we like the church in Pergamum or the church in Thyatira? Or are we like this church here in Sardis in chapter 3? So just a reminder as we go through, that's what we're supposed to do. It may be that we are a combination at various points of all of those churches. But we are meant to take a look at this and understand who we are that we might grow and if necessary, repent of our ways, change, and be used of God in a mighty way. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to Revelation chapter 3. We started a couple of weeks ago looking at the church in Sardis. We'll do a brief review, and then we'll take a look at what Jesus says to this church, what it needs to be, and what it needs to be about. So chapter 3, verse 1, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments and will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We noted that when Jesus addresses these churches, it has been his custom uh, to at least find something complimentary to say to the church. Uh, Jesus has a critique for most of these churches. There's only two about which Jesus has nothing to condemn. So most of them, he has some sort of criticism or some sort of critique. But for the most part, he also has something positive to say. Uh, that was the case for the church in Ephesus. He said, I know your deeds. I know your hard work, your labor for the Lord. Yet he said, I have this against you. You have forgotten your first love. So that was the pattern for Jesus. He would normally find something positive to say before he went on to make some sort of a critique. The exception to that is what we find here with this church in Sardis. Jesus finds absolutely nothing to commend and much to condemn. And the reason for that is the church in Sardis is a dead church. There is no life in it. 
This is what the Lord says. He says, I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. And if you think about it, a dead church is really no church at all. It may have been at one point, but it is no church now because the spiritual blessing and favor has gone from it. Reminds me of a little bit of a doggerel that was written by a minister. His bishop had sent him to a church that was dying or on the point of death, and he was sent there with the purpose of reviving the church. And he went there and he labored for years and years and years, tried to bring this church back to life, but it was just a disaster. Not, nothing worked. And finally, after so many years, he decided to give it up and move on to the next place. And as he did, he penned this little bit of doggerel. He said, tell my people when I am dead that they should shed no tears, for I shall be no deader then than they have been for years. <laughs> well, what do you do with a dead church? It's, in one sense, it's no laughing matter, is it? Because a church that is dead is not making any difference in the world. What good really is it? Well, that was the case for this church in Sardis. As I said, it was uh, a church that was living on its past glory. I said it was very much like Egypt today. Uh, Egypt is uh, a country that has a, a mystery surrounding it, a, a, just sort of a, an afterglow, if you will. Uh, but Egypt, for all of its past glory, a very romantic and ancient history, uh, it is nevertheless a country that is, uh, has no real future to it. It should have a great deal of wealth and power as the result of the Suez, but it has a very corrupt government. And you go to Egypt today, and it's a very depressing place to visit for the most part. Uh, you can visit the great museums and see the treasures of Tutankhamun. You can see the pyramids, and you can uh, go up and see the great tombs of the pharaohs. But for the most part, there is no future for this country. People live in abject poverty. The glory has departed. And there is a sense in which that is a description of Sardis as well. Sardis, we said, was a city that was located about 30 miles southeast of Thyatira. And it was the, about 50 miles east of Smyrna on that postal clerk's route, we said. If the postal clerk is going from city to city, that would have been the location of the city of Sardis. It had been a magnificent place in 1200 BC. It had been the capital of the ancient kingdom of Lydia. Its most prominent feature was that it was situated on this high plateau, and it was surrounded by huge mountains, some of them over 15 feet, 1,500 feet high. Now, for those of you who are thinking about football today, that would be five times the length or nearly five times the length of a football field. This made the city uh, very important in terms of its military significance. Uh, it was an almost impenetrable position. Um, most people thought that it was incapable of being taken because of where it was located. Uh, but, in spite of the fact that it looked to be virtually invincible, the fact remains that it had actually been conquered twice in its history. Both times had been absolutely catastrophic. Uh, the first time was by Cyrus of Persia in 549 B.C. This is the same Cyrus, incidentally, that is mentioned in the book of Daniel. And then it was captured a second time by Antiochus in 218 B.C., who was the successor of Alexander the Great. So by the time that John uh, receives this revelation, the city really is in uh, the late afternoon of its glory. And yet it had been glorious, we said. It had a king at one point. 
in ancient history, a man who's achieved an almost mythical status. His name was Croesus. We have a byword today, rich as Croesus. Well, this is the same man. He had uh, great wealth, but he was a proud man. And when Cyrus of Persia came against him, he thought that he could take Cyrus. He went and consulted the oracle of Delphi. And he was told by the oracle that if he went out and waged war against Cyrus, he would destroy a great empire. Well, naturally, he assumed that the empire that he was going to destroy was the Persian Empire. As it turns out, that was not the case. Uh, Prophecy was like a two-edged sword. Uh, He could destroy the great empire of the Persians. On the other hand, he might destroy his own empire as well. And that's exactly what happened. The Persians defeated them soundly. He retreated to his hilltop fortress, absolutely convinced, as I said, that because it was almost impenetrable that the Persians could never come against them. There's an interesting story associated with the capture of the city at this point. Um, Cyrus had um, offered a reward to any soldier who could find a way to make it up to the top of this hilltop fortress. And one soldier was watching intently. He could see a Lydian soldier on the top of the parapet And the Lydian soldier, bending over, dropped his helmet, and it rolled down to the bottom. And as this Persian soldier was watching, the Lydian soldier somehow managed to come down a crevice, a hidden ravine, retrieve his helmet, and then go back up the way that he had come. And he realized that there was a way to actually get into the city. He reported this to his higher officers and he led a little sortie up into the city. And when they got to the top of the parapet, they discovered that there were no guards posted. They were so convinced that nobody could take this hilltop fortress that they hadn't even bothered to post a guard at night. And the Persians went in, and they absolutely took the city. So pride went before the fall when it came to poor Croesus. In the year 17 AD, the city was destroyed by an earthquake. It had been rebuilt, but as I said, it was just a shadow of its former grandeur. The way I described it two weeks ago, as I said, at the time that John received this revelation, it was a city that might be described as too poor to paint, too proud to whitewash. And we all understand what that means. Unfortunately, the church in this city reflected the city itself. It was a church that was likewise in the late afternoon of its glory. It's interesting to note that this city of Sardis had a great cemetery associated with it, a necropolis. It was called the City of a Thousand Hills because of the burial mounds. And that was an apt description not only of the city, it was an apt description of the church in this place. It lacked energy, it lacked concern. Jesus said that it was a church that had a reputation for being alive. That is to say, they were holding services, people were going there, there was activity of a sort, but as far as their spiritual impact upon the world, Jesus says they were dead. Jesus says you have a reputation for being alive, but unfortunately you don't live up to your reputation. Now, what is interesting is when you read through here, there is no mention of any great heresy having taken place in this church. And that's not the case with the two churches that precede this one. We said that those two churches have been criticized because they had accommodated the teaching of Balaam and the teaching of the Nicolaitans. One of the churches had even accommodated this woman called Jezebel, a false prophetess. But there's no mention of the precise heresy that was the problem here 
in this particular church. We don't know what it was. Now, there does seem to be some indication of something because there is a reference to those who have not, the few, the minority, who have not yet soiled their clothes, which implies that somebody had soiled their clothes, which is no doubt a reference to some sort of corporate sin, some sort of sin that had invaded the life of the church. But there's no real reference to any great heresy. In other words, these were people who could probably stand up on Sunday and recite the words of the creed without crossing their fingers. In other words, they had all of the formal doctrines down pat. They they could profess with their lips the right things. The problem was they were not living it out in their lives. To put it the way that people like to put it today, they were talking the talk, they weren't walking the walk. And that was the problem for this church in Sardis. I said that they were a lovely chapel, C.T. Studd, that great cricketer who became a missionary, once said that he wanted to run a rescue mission within a yard of hell, but many people simply wanted to live within earshot of the chapel bell. That was probably an apt description of the church in Sardis. Picture of C.T. Studd there. I said the difference between a swamp and a lake is that a swamp and a lake both have water flowing into them, but only one has water flowing out, which keeps it refreshed and alive. The problem for the church in Sardis was that probably they were having the gospel, or at least in the past had had the gospel preached to them, but there was no gospel going back out into the world. As I said, they wanted to be a chapel, a lovely little place where people could attend. They did not want to be a mission statement making a difference in the world. And we mustn't forget that Jesus' last words to his disciples before he departed this earth were what? Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel, making disciples of all men, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. I pointed out to you before, but it's really important that you understand this, that Christianity is not a private matter. Now, many people will say that. Well, they say, well, I don't really talk a lot about my religion. I don't necessarily mention the name of Jesus because my religion is a very private matter. I have a brother-in-law who used to say that all the time. And uh, then he got a preacher in the family. He doesn't say that anymore. <laughs> um, but that's what we oftentimes say. Many of us were raised to believe that, that it's a private matter. It is not a private matter. As I said, the last words that Jesus spoke prior to his ascension, prior to departing this earth, was go into all the world and preach the good news. Announce it from the hilltops. Shout it from the rooftops. That's what we are called to do. Now, your religion, your faith in Jesus Christ may be a deeply personal matter, and it should be, but it is not by any means a private matter. Christianity is by definition a missionary religion. And as somebody once said, the church exists by mission as a fire exists by burning. It's not enough to have the gospel coming in. The gospel has to, by necessity, go back out into the world. William Temple, who was one of the great archbishops of Canterbury in the 20th century, he was the archbishop during World War II, said, the church is the only organization that exists for the sake of those who are not yet its members. Most organization exists for the sake of those who are its members. The church is the only organization that exists for the sake of those who have not yet become its members. Well, we said that um, part of the problem for the church in Sardis was that some of the people had soiled their clothes. We, again, don't know exactly what that was. 
but there was some sort of moral defilement. Something else that's interesting, however, about this church in Sardis is that there is no reference, and this is really a window into the life and health of this congregation. There is no reference here whatsoever to any persecution taking place in this church. Now, you'll notice the other churches that we've studied, the church in Ephesus, particularly the church in Smyrna, they had all been persecuted for their faith, hadn't they? Even the church in Pergamum, while it, it, was, it was holding to the right things, although it had engaged in some of the teaching of the Nicolaitans and the teaching of Balaam and so forth, but they had been called to repent of that. But what is interesting here is that there is no reference to this church being persecuted for anything at all, which helps us to understand that the reason they weren't being persecuted is because they weren't making any difference. Some years ago, I probably told you this story before, when I was at Virginia Seminary, John Stott, uh, the great English evangelical, came to Virginia Seminary to preach, and we had a magnificent chapel there in those days. It burned down, unfortunately, built a new chapel. But this was a beautiful Gothic chapel with marvelous stained glass windows, and appropriate to a seminary uh, that in the 19th century had been known for sending out missionaries. It had a huge stained glass window above the altar that showed Jesus commissioning the 12 disciples. And over that window were emblazoned the words, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. And I remember John Stott coming and climbing into the pulpit and preaching, and at one point stopping in the middle of his sermon and pointing to those words above the high altar. And he said, I know that many of you are going to be ordained to the ministry. He said, I want you to know something. He said, if you are faithful to those words you are going to be unpopular with the world. And he said, if you are popular with the world, I want you to know you're probably being unfaithful to those words. And I've never forgotten that to this day. Listen, folks, in a post-Christian context, and that's what we're living in, a post-Christian context, many people say, well, America's a Christian nation. I want you to understand two things. Number one, we are not. And number two, we never were. The Founding Fathers never intended this to be a Christian nation. Now, what they did say was that the majority of people were Christian and the Judeo-Christian morality would be undergirding of democracy. It would be necessary. But this country was founded on the separation of church and state. We don't have an official religion here in America. And so we need to, to keep that in mind. There was a time, of course, when the majority of people were Christians, but we are certainly not living in that day now. The millennial generation is the largest generation in this nation's history, surpassing the baby boomers. And yet they are, for the most part, largely unchurched. And when I say largely unchurched, I'm not saying they were raised in the church and they fell away. I mean they've not been raised in the church. They've not been raised in Christianity. So if you are living a Christian life in a post-Christian age, let me tell you something. You are going to be an irritant to the culture. Now, you are the culture's only hope. That is true. For a dying culture, the Christian gospel is the only hope. But many people do not want to receive the gospel as good news. This is one of the reasons why Paul said on one occasion, he said, we Christians are the fragrance of life to those who are being saved, but to those who are perishing, listen to this, we are the fragrance of death. Now, this was in a pre-Christian culture. One of the reasons I love to study the Apostle Paul and lead trips to Greece is because 
What Paul was contending with in the first century is very similar to what we are dealing with in the 21st century. We are living in a post-Christian context. Paul was living in a pre-Christian context. And if you look at the apostasy and the unbelief and the superstition of ancient Greece, one of the things you'll discover is that there's a lot of that in 21st century Western culture today. So if you want to know how to reach the culture, study the Apostle Paul. It's a good primer for how to do evangelism in the 21st century. But it's interesting to note that wherever Paul went, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ in that pre-Christian culture, what did he face? Persecution, imprisonment, sometimes even the prospect of death. Well, that should have been the case with this church here. But what is interesting is there's no reference whatsoever to this church suffering any kind of persecution at all. And it's interesting to note that the early Christians were persecuted not only from the pagan culture, but they were oftentimes persecuted from the Jews as well. They were thrown out of the synagogue. The largest synagogue in all of antiquity was located here in Sardis. And yet there is no reference whatsoever to this church being persecuted either by the Jews or by the pagan culture. Now what does that tell you? It tells you that they weren't doing anything to irritate the culture. They look just like the culture. Now, don't get me wrong. I am not suggesting for one minute that you and I as Christians should go out there and purposely irritate people. That's not the idea here. Nobody wants you to go out and be a jerk. But if we are faithful to the gospel, we need to understand that this is going to happen to us. Jesus said the same thing to his disciples. He said, I tell you the truth, if the world hated me, it will hate you also. So as I said, we have the very thing that the world needs, but the very thing that the world oftentimes, until the Holy Spirit enlivens people's minds and hearts, the very thing that the world hates. The problem for the church in Sardis was that it was a church at peace with the culture. But it was the peace of the cemetery. Tell my people when I am dead, they should not shed a tear, for I shall be no deader then than they have been for years. What do you do with a dead church? What do you do with a dead church? We have two pictures of the Sardinian church in John's time that come from the scriptures. The first comes from Matthew chapter 23. It is Jesus in a conversation with the Jewish religious leaders. So if you have your, your Bible with you, you can turn to the Gospel of Matthew for just a moment. We'll take a look at it. Matthew chapter 23. Listen to how Jesus describes the Jewish religious leaders of his time. This is an apt description, as I said, of the church in Sardis. Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and you Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. That was a description of this church, polished and impressive on the outside, but on the inside, it was like a great sepulcher. It was filled with dead men's bones and every kind of evil. Having accommodated themselves to the culture, they were incapable of making a difference in the culture. 
When the salt loses its saltiness, Jesus said it's good for what? It's good for nothing except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Paul has a more detailed description of this kind of a church uh, when he wrote to Timothy in his second letter to Timothy. So if you have your Bibles, again, turn to 2 Timothy for just a moment. This is a very detailed description. I think you'll find it to be, well, familiar. Let's put it that way. Because it's an apt description not only of this church in Sardis, but of many churches today. As I said, it's not as graphic as Jesus' description, but it is far more detailed. 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning at verse 1, Paul writes these words, but understand this. Now, Paul was writing to Timothy. Uh, Timothy was his young protege. Uh, Timothy was the uh, leader of the church in Ephesus. Paul, we said, spent almost three years there in Ephesus, more time than anywhere else. The first letter of these seven letters is written to the church in Ephesus. So Timothy is the pastor there. When Paul writes this second letter to Timothy, the apostle is imprisoned. He's imprisoned in Rome. This is his last will and testament. Uh, One great bishop, Hadley Mole of the Church of England, once said that he could never read through the second letter to Timothy without something like a mist filling in his eyes. Because he says it's so touching. Paul is imprisoned in Rome. He's in what is known as the Mamertine Jail. It was an abandoned cistern. You had to be lowered into it. There was hardly room to stretch out in the place. And he knew that the time of his departure was at hand. He knew that he was going to be killed. And indeed he was. He was taken out along the Appian Way, the main thoroughfare leading into Rome, and he was ultimately beheaded. And Paul knew that. And he knew that the church was being besieged at this point from all kinds of forces. There were all kinds of new religions springing up, and there was physical persecution against the church. And he was worried about who was going to fill his shoes. And the man that had been chosen to fill Paul's shoes. Can you imagine having to step into Paul's shoes as a leader in the church? Well, the young man who was called to do that was this man, Timothy. Timothy was a young man, as I said. Paul says, don't let anybody look down on you because you're young. Uh, He was also a a weak man, physically weak, compared to Paul, who appears to have been something like, you know, an ox when it came to being able to endure. Um, But Timothy was not. Timothy appears to be somewhat sickly, because Paul mentions taking a little wine for your upset stomach. So Timothy was about as opposite of Paul as you could possibly be, but he was a believer. And so Paul writes this second letter to Timothy to this young man to encourage him in the call that he has before him. And this is what he writes, chapter 3, verse 1. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Now, what are the last days? The last days are that whole period of time between Jesus' ascension and his return in glory. And what Paul is saying is that as the last days, we don't know how long the last days are going to be, but history, if it's divided into three parts, the creation and the fall... And the coming of the Messiah would be the second part, the reign of grace. And then there would be when the Messiah departs, that those last days until he returns in glory. So we are living in the last days. We don't know how long this period is going to be, but we do know this much. The time of the Lord's return is closer now than when Paul wrote to Timothy. So it could happen at any moment. 
And what does Paul say to Timothy? He said, but understand this, in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Tell me if this sounds familiar. Ask yourself, are we living in the last days or are we living in the last of the last days? For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And here's the statement that applies to the church in Sardis, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Now, does that sound like a description of our culture? That's an apt description of the culture in which we live. People have become proud, arrogant, abusive, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And then it is all summed up with this statement, having the form of godliness but denying its power. In other words, going through the motion, wearing the robes, having the candles, having all of the stuff, the trappings of religion, but not really making a difference in the world. That is a description of a dead church. Now, again, the question is, what do you do with a dead church? Well, the first thing to understand is that a dead church is not an apostate church. An apostate church is a church that has adopted false doctrine and is proclaiming false doctrine as the truth. A dead church is not a church that has necessarily gone off the rails doctrinally. It's just a church that has so accommodated itself to the culture by the way that they live, the people live, that it doesn't make any difference in the culture. Christians can't have anything to do with a church that has become apostate. But a dead church, well, you don't necessarily leave a dead church. There's always hope for a dead church. Now you say, well, how can there be hope for a dead church? If it's dead, it's dead. Well, we have to remember that the real miracle of Christianity, my friends, is not renewal. <laughs> you know, back in the 1980s, the renewal movement was going strong in the Episcopal Church, and everybody said, oh, the renewal movement. Well, don't get me wrong, I, I, I'm all for renewal, but renewal's not a miracle. Resurrection. Now, that's a miracle. So what do you do? How do you resurrect a dead church? Well, Jesus gives us really a formula for that here in this section. He actually tells us exactly how it is that you bring about life for a dead church, if indeed that is possible. And the first thing that Jesus says in verse 2 is he says, wake up. As I know your works, you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. First thing Jesus says is, wake up. Now, that's very interesting. It sounds very similar to what Jesus said when he raised Lazarus from the dead. He said what? He said, come forth. But here the words are slightly different. Here Jesus is not saying, come forth. Jesus says, wake up. That's hardly ever used as a description for something coming back from the dead. Wake up. So what is probably meant here is that Jesus is saying that one way, the only way really, that you can resurrect a dead church is by calling on those who are still faithful. You know, almost every church that has been a true church at one point in its history has somebody in it 
Now, they may be quiet, and they may have gone into a coma, spiritually speaking, but there's always somebody there who knows the gospel and knows the truth. And the way you bring a dead church back to life is that you call on those faithful few, the faithful remnant, if you will, to wake up. To wake up. All renewal begins with a call to those who are still believers to wake up. Um, I have a dear friend, John Guest. I think some of you know who John Guest is. And when I became the rector at St. Helena's in Beaufort, I went and spent some time with John, and I said, do you have any advice as to how I should lead the congregation? He said, I have, yes. I said, I do have some advice for you. He said, when you're dealing with a church, he said, remember this, you move with the movers, and you pastor the passive. Now think about that for a minute. He said, the only way you will get a church to move ahead is if you move with the movers and you pastor the passive. He's saying, you can't write anybody off because they're all God's people. They're all people for whom Christ died. But your job as the rector is to move the congregation forward, to get the people to the point where they become a mission station, not a mere chapel. And he said, now what you are going to discover is that some people are going to be on board with that. Some people are going to say, yes, we want to make a difference in the world. We want St. Philip's to be the lighthouse church. He said, your job is to move with those people. He says, but on the other hand, there are going to be people who are indifferent, that don't want to move ahead. Or perhaps, he says, are even antagonistic toward what you're called to do. He said, what do you do with those people? He said, the tendency of some pastors is to write them off. He said, you can't write them off. You are called to pastor them as well. He said, so pastor them, but don't let them hold you back from the work that you've been called to do. You move with the movers, you pastor the passive. That's exactly what Jesus was saying to this church in Sardis. He was saying, wake up. Those of you who are faithful, you need to wake up so that you can begin to move the congregation, move the church forward. the first thing that is necessary if you're going to revive a dead church is that you have to make a call to those who are genuine believers. What they should hear in their pastor's voice, in the voice of their shepherd, is the voice of the good shepherd. And hearing his voice then begin to do what? Follow along. So that's the first thing Jesus says. He says, to those faithful, you are to call them to wake up, to shake off their slumber, and to gird on their armor. As Bishop Lawrence likes to say, if you become a member of the church, you have not signed on to a cruise ship. You have signed on to a battleship. Here's the second thing he says that you need to do. Jesus says you need to strengthen what remains. That is to say, for those who are behind, who are faithful, and and you have to remember this, even those who are passive who are not particularly interested in moving the church forward, who simply want a little chapel and not a mission station, you never know what God the Holy Spirit is going to do in their lives to enliven them so that they stop being mere members of a chapel and become warriors for Christ. That can happen, and I've seen it happen over and over again. That's one of the reasons why you don't write off anybody. But in order to get the congregation moving, in order to revive the church, one of the things you do is you have to move with those who are the movers. And for those faithful, Jesus says, you not only call them to wake up, but you need to strengthen them. That is to say, you need to equip them for the work at hand. Strengthen those who may be babes in Christ, 
who have only been feeding on the milk, but feed them with the spiritual food of the gospel that they may be strengthened to make a difference in the world. There's a powerful illustration of how you do this in the Old Testament. Uh, Turn back, if you will, to the book of Ezekiel, right toward the end of the Old Testament. Ezekiel chapter 37. Great story. Ezekiel the prophet is called by God to preach to the people who, for the most part, the nation is dead. Spiritually speaking, Israel has has died. And so Ezekiel's got a call and he's got to revive the nation. How's he going to do that? Well, God gives him a vision. And this is the vision that he gets. It's a valley of dry bones. Chapter 37, verse 1, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. The nation had not only been dead, it had been dead for some time. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? Can the dead come back to life? That's the question. Can the nation be revived? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Prophesy means preach. Every preacher loves this passage. Because at one point or another in his ministry, he's always felt like he's preaching to a valley of dry bones. I said, never here, but in other places, that's the way it is. So he's told to preach to the dry bones. And so what does he do? He does it. I mean, you don't have to prepare much for that kind of a sermon because you're not going to get any kind of criticism. But at any rate, thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live, and I will lay sinews upon you, and I will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And so I preached as I was commanded. And as I preached, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bones, and I looked, and behold, they were sinews on them, and the flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them. He preached, and as he preached, the dead came together. But the next verse is critical, or the next part of that verse. But, listen to this, there was no breath in them. So they were dry bones parched they'd been there for a long time he preaches to them and all of a sudden they begin to look like something living but they're still not animated verse 9 then he said to them please prophesy to the breath prophesy son of man and say to the breath now the word here translated as breath is an interesting word in hebrew it is the word ruach it's like you're clearing your throat ruach and it literally translated can be breath wind or spirit. You'll recall that on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit showed up in power, He came in the form of a mighty rushing wind and filled that upper room. You remember that? It's the same word in Hebrew. And so He says, preach to the breath. Preach about the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who is the Lord and the what? The Lord and the giver of life. Isn't that what we say? And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life. So he says, 
preach to them, but preach to them about the need for the new birth. And he said, so I preached to them. He said to me, prophesy to the breath. So I prophesied as he had commanded me. And the breath came into them and they lived. We're told that a great breath came and filled that valley and filled those slain and they stood on their feet, a living host. How do you revive a dead church? You don't do it by gimmicks, techniques, programs. You revive a dead church by preaching to it. By bringing forth the treasure of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the word of God, and you preach that, and you preach the necessity of the new birth which comes through a relationship with Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. You preach that, and you preach that in season, and you preach that out of season, when it's popular and when it is unpopular. Going back to that passage from 2 Timothy for just a minute, I want you to notice what Paul said to Timothy. He said, there are going to be difficult times in those last days. People are going to be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Good luck to you, Timothy. That's what Paul says to him. Sorry, I'm going to be uh, leaving, but good luck to you, because that's what you're contending with, Timothy. And Timothy's no doubt thinking, well, how do I do that? What would I do to a church in that kind of a culture? How do, how do I bring life to this? And this is what Jesus says, what Paul says to Timothy. He says, but as for you, same chapter, verse 14, continue in what you have learned and firmly believe, knowing from whom you learned it. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. For all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correcting, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. And then Paul goes on to say this. I've always imagined it as an ordination service. Have you ever been to an ordination service? Do you ever get an opportunity to go? Because there's always a point in the service where the preacher is up in the pulpit and he's delivering a sermon and then he'll turn to the ordinand, the person who's about to be ordained, this sacred office, and he will say, stand up. And he gives him a charge. I charge you in the presence of God and in the presence of this witness, this is what your ministry is to be all about. That is exactly what Paul does here with Timothy. It's almost as though he's in this ordination service. Paul is preaching. This is his last sermon to this young man. And it's as though he says, stand up, Timothy. You can imagine Timothy standing up in the presence of the congregation. And Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when men will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. They will turn away from listening to the truth, and they will wander off into myths. But as for you, always be sober-minded. 
endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. That's how you bring life to a dead church. It's the only thing, I'm here to tell you, it is the only thing that will do it. Is the faithful preaching of the gospel in season and out of season. So you call on those who do believe to wake up and you strengthen those who do believe, the movers, so that they can be mature, not mere babes in Christ. Jesus says this third thing. He says, remember. To the church there in Sardis, he says, remember. Remember what you have received. What had they received? Well, at one point they had received the gift of the Holy Spirit, hadn't they? They had received the Holy Spirit and they were to remember that. They were to remember, first of all, that they'd been bought with a price. They were not their own. Their bodies were temples of the Holy Spirit. They were to remember that, that they had been saved from something. They had been saved for something. Do you realize that as a believer today? Jesus Christ saved you, not simply so that you can get your ticket punched and go to heaven when you die. He saved you that you might make a difference in the world while you are here. And you say, well, I only became a Christian when I was 70 years old. Are you still alive? Are you still breathing? Then there's still work for you to do. They are to remember the gift of the Holy Spirit, and they are to remember, Jude puts it very well, the faith once delivered to the saints. Faith once delivered to the saints. Here's the fourth thing they were to do. They were to obey not enough merely to hear the word, my friends. That was the problem for the church in Sardis. That's what Paul was complaining against with Timothy. He was saying they have the form of godliness, but they deny its power. They've heard the words, but it's made no difference in their lives. It doesn't matter if they appear to be alive today. They can have a thousand people. But they can be like that church in Sardis. That city had a city of a thousand mounds. There were a thousand people there, but they were all dead. You can't be a church unless you are alive. Here's the fifth thing he says to do, that is to repent. Whatever it is that is bringing death upon the congregation, he says you need to turn from it. You need to turn away from it that you may truly live. That's how you revive a dead church. Now, we don't have time to go into this. I always am more ambitious than I should be question is, what will happen if Sardis fails to repent? It's all been bad news up to this point. But if you come back next week, there is some good news. But you'll have to come back next week for that. You'll see up there under item number 9, Roman numeral 2, the very Reverend Richard Reed's advice. When I was at Virginia Theological Seminary, I was graduating. The dean was um, retiring after, oh, about 40 years of service in the seminary about um, 15 or 20 years as the dean. And um, he met with the senior class and we talked and we asked him if he had any advice for us as we were getting ready to graduate and he said yes. He said, remember this. He said, wherever you go, he said, remember there are Christians there before you. He said, your job is to make sure there are Christians there when you leave. <laughs> so there's always hope for a dead church. Not a lot of hope for an apostate church. Judgment comes upon that. But for a dead church, a church that is still professing the right things, but has sort of lost its zeal, 
that has accommodated itself to the world, that has become sort of this comfortable little chapel, there is always hope. But the only way there's going to be hope is if the people begin to hear, listen to the word of God, which has the ability to raise them from their slumber, to bring new life, to fill them with the grace and power of the Holy Spirit, and to equip them for the work that God has them to do. It's a preaching in season and out of season. And let me tell you something, I am absolutely convinced that nobody, nobody can sit under a faithful preaching of the gospel for a very long time before it has some sort of effect upon them. If they're dead, they're either going to be raised to life, and if they hate what they're hearing, they're going to leave. It's a winnowing process, but the gospel never, never comes back void or empty. It always prospers and accomplishes that for which God intended it. It's one of the reasons why somebody said when I came to St. Philip's, they said, well, what are you going to do when you get here? Search committee asked me that question. What are, you, what are you going to do when you get to St. Philip's? And I said, I'm going to do what I always do. I remember one Sunday walking home after I first got here. I'm sharing my heart with you. And, you know, you come into a new parish and you sort of feel a little bit like a mosquito in a nudist camp. <laughs> I mean, you know what you ought to do, but you just don't know where to begin. And, and that's sort of how I felt. And I was walking home. We were in front of the uh, Huguenot church and Kristen turned to me and she said, Honey, you look stressed. And I said, Oh, I do feel stressed. And she said, well, you just need to concentrate on things that need immediate attention. And I looked at her and I said, everything needs immediate attention. And then she said to me, remember what Charlie Webb said to you. Charlie Webb was a member of my last parish, a very straightforward sort of fellow. And his advice to me was always this. He said, when in doubt, play your high card. When in doubt, play your high card. And the one thing I know how to do is to preach and teach the Word of God. And what I've discovered every place I've gone is that those who are dead in their trespasses and in their sins are raised to a new life and chapels become mission statements that change the world. And that's what God is going to do with St. Philip's. So. Well, let's close with a word of prayer and then we'll send you off to church so we can celebrate this third Sunday in the season of Advent, second Sunday in the season of Advent. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for your word. And these words to the church in Sardis, it was a dead church, Lord, but you are the one who brings life out of death. And so we give you thanks and praise for that. We thank you for your faithfulness. And we pray that we would take these words to heart that you would use us in spite of ourselves for the glory of your name. Wake us from our slumber and use us to change the world that the city church that was once a lighthouse to this community might be a lighthouse to the world. For Jesus' sake, amen. Thank you.